Well, I will be honest. On first reading, that is not the most cheerful of Scripture lessons on this gray day. But at least there's nothing else going on in the world, right? So we can just sit here and ease and comfort and dig right in to the day of the Lord. Good morning, fellowship. For those of you I haven't met or for those of you who have completely forgotten that I existed, my name is John Beller. I'm one of our elders. It's good to see like the top halves of your faces out there this morning. Um, like a lot of our members and, and a lot of guests, I've been uh, participating in worship um, on the live stream and with the podcast for many months now. And uh, this is my first time to be worshiping here in the Landers since March, and it is good to be with you this morning. I think this may be one of the first times since March. I think it is the first time, but I'm not entirely certain about that. Um, that someone other than a member of the church staff has been in control of the microphone. And so I'm going to take advantage of that for just a second and say thank you to Brent and Hayden and Sam and Tara. You guys have kept us going in a way that is, it's, it's overwhelming really what you have done for us. Y'all, just, just like all of us, right? They had no preparation for church in a pandemic. Um, but they have continued um, to, to gather us and to call us to worship and to mission and to relationship. And thank you all. Thank you, guys, for the work you've done. You are a blessing to this congregation and this place. And I, I think when I read my list out there, I didn't mention Barbara, I didn't mention Bruce. This really, um, church, we are, a, we are blessed to have the leadership um, and staff that we do here. Thank you all. Peter's second letter starts off so well. I mean, so well. The scholars tell us that it's written in this very fine and elegant style. And as we listened to Brent's sermon several weeks ago on spiritual growth, and on remembering, and then to Sam's sermon on um, the word as a lamp, we were really introduced at the beginning of this you know, uh, letter to Peter as a caring pastor, as a real shepherd of weary souls. And then Peter leads us down kind of an odd path. The middle of this letter gets sort of weird, and it's okay to say that, um, this is scripture, of course, and um, as the prophet Ezekiel was instructed to eat this book, we're going to chew on this too, but it feels a little bit like eating the stuff that you're supposed to eat and not the stuff that you want to eat. Chapter 2 and the first half of uh, chapter 3 are pretty hard to read. In chapter 2, last week, um, we read it. Peter's all like scoffers, and somehow dog vomit shows up in that chapter. The fact that Brent managed to preach a message in a way that encouraged us to soak in the scriptures and read old books and listen to Jesus' voice, I think, is a real testament to how good he is at this. It's an achievement. And now we've turned the page here to chapter 3, and Peter's going on about the day of the Lord. There's more scoffers and ruin for them. There's flood, there's fire, there's destruction. There's judgment. It's such a contrast to our favorite parts of the scriptures, right? 
like in the Psalms or the prophets, that proclaim God's goodness and God's rescue and God in charge of all of this. Paul's letters just constantly return to the themes of God's merciful presence and the awesome power that it has to transform lives. John's writings are full of the themes of God's total, overwhelming love in Christ and the way that that transforms our relationships. This middle part of the second letter of Peter is a challenging scripture. And the day of the Lord is a challenging concept. But I think it can speak powerfully and assuringly to us today. In fact, I think all of those elements from our favorite parts of the scriptures are in here. We just have to look and listen closely. We're going to highlight three important things in this lesson this morning. First, the day of the Lord is a promise. Second, the day of the Lord has a purpose. And third, that promise and that purpose are going to help us learn to rest in the Lord. The first thing that we're going to pull out of here is that the day of the Lord is a promise, which is really another way of saying that the day of the Lord is a prophecy. Now, Brent taught us about prophecy last week. If you recall, he said that prophecy is partly about the future, but that it is also about right now, about what God is doing in the world. I had this uh, philosophy, an Old Testament professor at Washita named Isaac Moase, and he had this great way of describing prophecy. Dr. Moase would say that prophecy is both foretelling and forth-telling. It is both accurately predictive of the future and discerningly descriptive of the present. In fact, prophecy foretells because it forth-tells. It helps us understand what's coming next by explaining to us what's going on right now. Prophecy ultimately teaches us what is true now and always about God and the world. And here in chapter 3, Peter says that what is true about God in the world is that God's judgment is coming for the present age. There will be a fire, we read in verse 7, that will destroy what is ungodly. This fire will burn up and dissolve the heavenly bodies, we read later in verse 10. And the earth and the works that are done on it, Peter says, will be exposed. The day of the Lord will be a day of judgment for this age. I want to pause here just a moment to consider the language and images that Peter uses. We are often very uncomfortable with scriptural references to judgment, particularly to destruction, and especially when they are about God's destruction of God's world. Um, we should be uncomfortable with that language. Scripture teaches us again and again that God made this world. God made this world and called it good. It teaches us that God came into this world, incarnate in Jesus Christ, in order to save us in it. And it teaches us that God will redeem, will resurrect, will remake this world into new heavens and new earth. As N.T. Wright loves to say, Scripture proclaims that God will set the world to rights. And so how do we reconcile 
our faith in Scripture's beautiful assurances of God's care and compassion for creation and creatures with this language and these images of fire and destruction. It's a hard thing to do. One of the things we can and should do is pay attention to what the text really does say. And we read it closely, I think we might realize it doesn't say quite what our imaginations or our out-of-context assumptions suggest it does. See, Peter likens this destructive fire to the flood, which he also says the world perished in. And so that's really interesting. Since he describes the destruction of this fire comparatively to the destruction of the flood, Peter almost certainly means something other than total consumption or annihilation of creation. And listen again to the way that he describes the effect of the fire. And the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. The NRSV reads that the earth and everything that is done on it will be disclosed. And the NIV says the earth and everything that is done on it will be laid bare. I want us to note a few things here. First, heavenly bodies probably refer to the sun and the moon and the stars, which meant something very different in Peter's ancient cosmology than it does for those of us with a Copernican understanding of the universe. Peter almost certainly understood sun and moon and stars as being up there, right? Whereas we understand them more as being out there. And that distinction means all sorts of differences in how we see and understand the universe. Now second, N.T. Wright has this really cool suggestion that the disintegration of the heavenly bodies may be God's way of cleaning up and making space for the order of the new creation. Whereas we read in the book of the Revelation to John, the new Jerusalem has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God is its light and the lamp is the lamb. Third thing, since this fire on the day of the Lord does not turn the earth to ashes and dust, what does it do? Well, Peter says it exposes, it discloses, it lays bare the truth of what is on and what is done on the earth. The heavenly bodies already do that in a way, though, right? Sun and moon and stars, they're sources of light. But they are lights that are shining to us from or in darkness. They are lights that make shadows, lights that have the power to illuminate, but also to conceal. But the fire on the day of the Lord reveals. It reveals that God has set the world to rights. That is the promise of the day of the Lord, to set the world to rights. It is a promise of judgment on the present age, on all of the evil and unrighteousness and injustice that is done on the earth and especially in the darkness and in our own hearts. It is a promise of a fiery act of love that will reveal God's new 
creation. The day of the Lord is a promise. And it has a purpose. The second point is simpler to make because it is incredibly straightforward. The purpose of the day of the Lord is rescue. Salvation. Peter's original audience for this letter was apparently in some distress. The day of the Lord was slower in coming than they had thought or they had hoped. And false prophets were teaching that the delay meant that the Lord was not going to come. What are we doing here, this congregation must have been asking. Why are we living this way if the Lord isn't coming back? Be patient, Peter assures them. In verse 9 he writes, The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some think of slowness, but is patient with you not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. God is not slow. God is patient. Specifically, the Lord is patient with us, is patient with the creation that he adores. Peter says that the Lord does not want any to perish. What a remarkable thing for Peter to say right there. Now, it's not radical by the standards of the New Testament. As we mentioned earlier, Scripture just drenches us with the proclamations of God's love for creation and creatures. The most referenced verse in the Bible speaks of the exact same things in almost the exact same terms that God so loved the world that he sent his Son into it, that whoever believes in him should not perish. It's not radical, but it is remarkable. The purpose of the day of the Lord is to fulfill God's desire that none should perish. It isn't punishment. It isn't cosmic vindication. It isn't righteous anger. The purpose is that none should perish. In the revelatory fire of the day of the Lord, God will set the world to rights. He will do it for the flourishing and enjoyment of the whole creation and for his everlasting joy and satisfaction in you purpose of the day of the Lord is rescue, salvation. So the Lord promises to make the world right with the purpose of saving us from all of the ways that it is wrong, from all of the separations of sin and death. Now, rest in the day of the Lord. This passage calls us to rest in that promise and that purpose. And we don't have to wait on that day either. Prophecy is foretelling and forthtelling. The day of the Lord is coming for us right now. God's fiery, revealing presence is coming for us right now. It is coming for the church. It is awaking us all to the character and courage of hopeful people and calling us to bear witness to what's true about God in the world. It is coming for this church. It's revealing a fresh vision for how we can love each other and our place and how to live together in and for it, even in a pandemic. The day of the Lord is coming for you. Revealing the truth about the purpose and promise of God's presence in your life. Rest in that mercy, in that assurance, and in that peace that it provides. This is really, really important, y'all.
We're all just walking around right now with this kind of constant, low-grade anxiety and uneasiness. I realize we don't want to dwell on it because, you know, we got to get home and get lunch and, and the rest of the week. But we're all carrying a lot right now. The pandemic, the politics, the economy, the family stresses that all of that creates, and it's all just piled on top of the usual inconveniences and annoyances and risks that we all manage in our lives and our schedules. A friend at work has had this really significant sinus congestion and has just felt awful for the last couple of weeks. She's tested negative for COVID three times, negative for the flu, negative for strep. She called earlier this week on her way back from yet another visit to the doctor and said, I guess we still just get the crud too. She's right. Along with all of the extra, we still have to deal with the crud. And there's like 53 days left in 2020. We need to rest. You need to rest. Unclench. Still your hearts and quiet your minds. And hear this. The promise and purpose of the day of the Lord are an invitation to do that. Rest in the Lord. I want to look at three specific ways that I think this passage encourages us to rest. First, we can rest in the mercy of holy mystery. I imagine that as a diverse group of evangelicals, I don't know everybody's background here, but I imagine that a lot of us grew up in or have belonged to churches that emphasized a specific kind of dispensationalist theology or that were at very least familiar with generalized versions of end times fascination. Peter's notion of the day of the Lord and the imagery that he uses in this passage have an obvious connection with all of that. And this is mostly a guess, but I suspect that there are some parts of social media and the message board ecosystem that would not be hard to find and not a few pulpits that would not be hard to find where issues and imagery from 2020 have provided plenty of material for speculation in these directions. I'm not up here to talk about dispensationalism or critique it. I couldn't if I wanted to. I've never been much interested in it and don't know enough about it, but it is surprising how much of that kind of thing seeps in. Several years ago when I was a college student, I experienced this kind of graceful relief that I still remember to this day when my dorm mother at Washita, I, I really hesitate to use this word, but she was an old lady. She was an old lady who had just cared for the place for many, many years, mom sharp. I was sitting in her apartment one night, and she told me what was apparently a fairly well-known joke, but I'd never heard it, that she was a pan-millennialist. Honey, it's all going to pan out in the end. I realize that's a silly joke, but it sounded like gospel to me at the moment, at that moment. If the word of the Lord or the day of the Lord if the day of the Lord is a thing that you find heavy or intimidating or frightening or bewildering, 
particularly as it relates to end time speculations, I want to assure you that we do not know how it is all going to pan out. It is, in an older sense of the word, a mystery, a thing that is hidden, that will be revealed. And it will be revealed. The day of the Lord is a promise, but it is not a riddle comprised of messages that we have to decode. Peter explains this really clearly. But do not ignore this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like one day. The day of the Lord belongs to the Lord. And we don't know all of his ways. We know he has been with us. We know he is with us and will be with us. We know that the stories of God with us are full of faithfulness and surprise and delight and mercy. We know his promise and we know his purpose. The Lord is not slow about his promise, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish. Jesus did not leave us with a riddle to solve, but whether with a way to follow. That way is hard. Its burdens can be heavy. A cross is hard to carry, especially in a pandemic. This is a way of death that leads to life, but it is ultimately a joyous way of sharing and participating in God's mission in the world. And even if that way seems sometimes to be incompletely mapped or mysterious. It is marked by God's promise, God's purpose, and unending mercies. Rest today in the mercy of holy mystery. Second, we can rest in the assurance of holy power. So, I don't know if you know this, you may have heard there was an election this week. There was. We are, praise God, a diverse congregation. And so I assume that our emotional reactions to the campaigning and the apparent results span a wide spectrum between anger or fear, um, straight on through disappointment, trepidation, relief, optimism, and on into celebration or thanksgiving. And it's fine, really. I know a lot of folks think that we should be, as Christians, united in our politics and our ideologies and our affiliations and our priorities. But politics is messy and it is complicated and the policy results of it, at least, are really important. Followers of Jesus share obvious values. We share in God's promise and purpose. We share in this way together we all bring different backgrounds and perspectives and experiences to this journey. We met Jesus in different circumstances and we sense the Spirit moving in different places. I don't think that's a problem. I think it enhances our witness. I think it expands our reach. I think it empowers our work as long as we understand it that way. I particularly love the diversity that I've found in this church because I have experienced it as being well-considered and characterized by openness and curiosity and generosity. Jesus led a motley crew into Jerusalem, and I bet they didn't all agree 
on where they ought to get dinner or how to split the ticket. God is in charge. All that is belongs to him. Acknowledging that should always, always scramble and reorder our politics, and it should always scramble and reorder any of the ways that we construct identity or engage with power and privilege in the world. God is in charge. And Peter reminds us that the day of the Lord will come announced by the same word that first formed the world that the fire will reveal and write. God is in charge and the day of the Lord is coming. Not the day of the Democrats, not the day of the Republicans, not the day of any other pretender to power in this world. You will not find ultimate satisfaction or relief in the comforts and identities that this age has to offer. You will not be forever defined by the evil that happens to or around you. The day of the Lord is coming, and it is in the power of that promise and that purpose that we can rest. Rest in the assurance of holy power. Before we move on, I want to caution us. Resting in the assurance of God's power is not an excuse for ignoring our call to identify, resist, and transform the injustice and unfairness and evil that we see in the world. We have good news to preach and share. Y'all, we have good news to preach and to share and to live out. But we need rest to be able to do all of the work and love our neighbors well. And we can rest. God really is in charge. Rest today in the assurance of holy power. Third, rest in the peace of holy presence. We've talked about some things that maybe make us fearful or uncertain and how resting in mystery can address that. We've talked about some things that divide us and how resting in assurance can address that. Let's talk about how much we really do desire, because we do, unity and wholeness and how resting in the peace of God's presence can offer that. Peace, real peace, requires unity, which because of the separations of sin and death requires reconciling work. And maybe a particular fiery light that will reveal to us the ties that really do bind us. I'm going to throw a boomerang here, so just follow me, right? At an event in uh, Washington as the Civil War was ending, Abraham Lincoln rather famously asked the band to play the song Dixie. He supposedly called it one of the best tunes I've ever heard. We like to think of that as a moment of gracious inversion that implies an attempt at reconciliation, and maybe so. I'm, I'm a history nerd. I love Lincoln. Um, I definitely like to think about it that way, but it is hard to ignore what else he supposedly said about that song, which is that our adversaries over there attempted to appropriate it, but I insisted yesterday that we captured it. That tune is now federal property. Now, that's folksy and funny, but it is also not high-minded reconciliation. Speaking of Dixie, this boomerang's still out there. I graduated from Highland High School up the road. Highland's mascot, you may know, was and is uh, the Rebels. So 
Cave City played football at Highland a few weeks ago, and Millie was playing, and so I, I went up there and watched her. Um, I was reminded of one of the steps that the school took a few years ago to address some of the problematic impressions that are created by that mascot. Um, in addition to thankfully at last getting rid of that goofy flag, they sort of pulled a reverse Lincoln, okay? And instead of playing Dixie as the fight song, now they play the battle hymn of the Republic. It's interesting. And if I was being really generous and kind, I think that I would say, good try, guys. Have y'all ever paid any attention to the words of the battle hymn of the Republic? There's something. I'm going to read a couple of stanzas. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. I told you the boomerang was going to come back to us, back right here in 2 Peter chapter 3. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He is trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. He has loosed the fateful lightning of his terrible swift sword. His truth is marching on. I have seen him in the watchfires of a hundred circling camps. They have builded him an altar in the evening dews and damps. I can read his righteous sentence in the dim and flaring lamps. His day is marching on. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Like I said, that's something. And it certainly fits with a particular vision of God's judgment and fire and our typical ideas about identity and power. But any peace that results from victory in that kind of battle is not the peace of reconciliation. And it's not a peace that fits with God's promise to set the world to rights or God's purpose that none should perish. This is, though. Audrey Assad uh, rewrote that song and recorded it and published it last year as Your Peace Will Make Us One. Maybe you've heard it or read a couple of stanzas. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. You are speaking truth to power. You are laying down our swords, replanting every vineyard till a brand new wine is poured. Your peace will make us one. I've seen you in our home fires burning with a quiet light. You are mothering and feeding in the wee hours of the night. Your gentle love is patient. You will never fade or tire. Your peace will make us one. Glory, glory. Hallelujah. What a beautiful and brilliant reconfiguration of a battle hymn. If you haven't heard it, I really want to recommend it to you. Go listen to it. Your peace will make us one. Audrey Assad. And I want to make just one quick point about those subtle reconfigurations that she uses. While the battle hymn is narrated to an audience and sung from the point of view of a kind of cheerleading observer to what God is doing, Assad's version is sung to the Lord from the point of view of a rescued sinner who is gratefully subject to the peace that the coming of the Lord brings. Rather than merely reappropriating or replacing 
one version of victory and power for another. The song transforms perspective and relationship the same way that God's presence does with us. God's presence reconfigures everything. And when we reorient our lives around that fact and point our hearts and minds in that direction, we can see the coming of the day of the Lord as a day of rest. Rest, you guys, in the peace of holy presence. Rest in the day of the Lord. To help us rest in mercy and assurance and peace, I want to encourage you to try something this week. Back in the spring, Brent preached this excellent series of psalms, um, series of, of sermon on the psalms, on praying the psalms. And I want to call you back to that. I want to ask you very specifically to pray Psalm 24 this week. It is a day of the Lord kind of psalm. And it calls us to the power of God's presence. Come among us. I'm going to go ahead and read it right now. Listen. The earth is the Lord's and all that is in it, the world and those who live in it. For he has founded it on the seas and established it on the waters. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? Those who have clean hands and pure hearts, who do not lift up their souls to what is false and do not swear deceitfully, they will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from the God of their salvation. Such is the company of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates. Be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is the king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is the king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. Pray that this week. I think you will find in it something of the promise and purpose of the day of the Lord, and I think it will help you rest too. The day of the Lord is coming. It is coming for the whole creation that is, as Paul says in Romans, groaning, expectant of the new heavens and new earth. God will set the world to rights and rescue us. That is a promise and a purpose in which we can rest. Let's pray. Mighty God, the earth and all that is in it is yours. We are yours. And we thank you for the promise and purpose of the day of the Lord. Come to us even now as we seek your face. Help us to open our gates and our doors and if you have to, breach the walls that we have built to protect ourselves and that sometimes even keep us from you. Help us to recognize our rest in you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.